The outlook wasn't brilliant for the Mudville Nine that day. The score stood four to two with but one inning more to play. And then when Cooney died at first and Barrows did the same, a pall-like silence fell upon the patrons of the game. A straggling few got up to go in deep despair. The rest clung to the hope which springs eternal in the human breast. They thought, if only Casey could but get a whack at that. We'd put even money now with Casey at the bat. But Flynn preceded Casey, as did also Jimmy Blake, and the former was a hoodoo and the latter was a flake. And so upon that stricken multitude, grim melancholy sat, for there seemed but little chance of Casey getting to the bat. But Flynn let drive a single to the wonderment of all, and Blake, the much despised, tore the cover off the ball. And when the dust had lifted and men saw what had occurred, there was Jimmy safe at second and Flynn a hug and third. Then from 5,000 throats and more, there rose a lusty yell. It rumbled through the valley. It rattled in the dale. It pounded on the mountain and recoiled upon the flat. For Casey, mighty Casey, was advancing to the bat. Most of us know this poem. It may have been a long time since you heard it last, and maybe you didn't really think that it was an insight into the human condition, but I'm going to argue this morning that it is exactly that. And I'm going to skip now towards the end of that and read the final part of it because it provides a great point of launch for us into a whole new series today. So the last two stanzas of that poem as it moves forward with Casey at the bat, we read these words, The sneer is gone from Casey's lip, his teeth are are clenched in hate. He pounds with cruel violence his bat upon the plate, and now the pitcher holds the ball, and now he lets it go. And now the air is shattered by the force of Casey's blow. Oh, somewhere in this favored land, the sun is shining bright. The band is playing somewhere, and somewhere hearts are light. And somewhere men are laughing, and somewhere children shout. But there is no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has struck out. An insight into the human condition. Let's unpack that poem for just a few moments as we kind of try to wrap our minds around what Ernest Lawrence Thayer is telling us with that entertaining poem. Casey represents hope, especially in that particular context and the poem itself. He represents hope for a win, and the win is what is hoped will bring joy to those people. The last stanza, the last statement of the poem, but there is no joy in Mudville because Casey let us all down. What are you chasing today, I wonder? For the Mudville people, the win, the, the uh, hopes that were put on this guy named Casey, the, the implication of the poem is that they could not have joy if they didn't win, and they put all of their hope on this one batter, and he let them down. And so there is no joy in Mudville. I wonder about your life today. How much joy do you take with you into the new year? The question that will be on our minds for the next few months as we move forward is this question, what are you chasing in life? 
We all chase something. We're all looking for something in life. Some of us know what we think we're looking for, and some of us know what we in fact are looking for, and some of us find ourselves on this treadmill of a chase, working our way through life, hoping to find some kind of joy, some kind of meaning in our lives today. Psychologists will tell us the term is actualization, that we, we get all there is to life in ourselves, and we, that we are at peace with ourselves, and we understand all of these things, and life is good. What are you chasing in life? Where will you find fulfillment and meaning in the life that you have in front of us? Today we begin a series in the book of Ecclesiastes. So let me invite you to turn there. I will tell you in my Bible, if it is exactly at the halfway point between the two covers, it's exactly at the halfway point, if that'll help you a little bit. I was uh, telling a few people earlier in the week that we were going to begin this series today. It's going to take us probably through the, uh, through the spring. We'll finish it before summer, but there's plenty of this in here for us that, that we'll find these different snapshots of a chase. And, and I'm going to have to do a, a little bit of housekeeping here in the beginning part of this today, but let, before I start into that, let me just kind of lay this out before you. What we find in the book of Ecclesiastes, in this book that As one person told me this week, I've never heard a sermon out of the book of Ecclesiastes. Well, you'll get plenty of those over the next few months. But I believe that you will find that we find ourselves here as we look at this writer of the book of Ecclesiastes as he lays out his arguments for us. We may well think that we're looking in a mirror at ourselves. Because what we get with the book of Ecclesiastes is the insights of this wise guy. I'll help you understand what I mean by that in just a few moments. But we get the insights of him after his own chase. And so he gives us these insights into his life and into life in general as he has worked his way through at a high level of life. And he comes to these conclusions and he helps us as he just works his way little by little through the whole thing. So let me hit you with a couple of pieces of housekeeping as we begin, and I'll get all those done today so that I don't have to keep repeating this as we go through the series together. When we come to any book of the Bible, if you're going to do really good Bible study, you need to begin to try to understand the context into which it is written. And part of that has to do with the question of who wrote it. And when we come to the book of Ecclesiastes, we, we run into a problem here. Because there are those who will argue forcefully that Solomon is the one who wrote this. This was a position that was taken for many years. Most scholars today would say that Solomon did not write it. Matter of fact, what they'll tell you is uh, that they're going to use the term. If you'll notice in verse 1, by the way, the word of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. And many will say because Solomon was David's son and Solomon was king, then they must be talking about Solomon here. Others will say, no, the word preacher there, uh, and you're going to hear me refer to this person, whoever wrote this in a variety of different ways, but the word preacher there in the first verse of this translation that I use, yours may not use the word preacher, it may use the word teacher. But this person, whether it's Solomon or somebody else, Uh, This person has this point of reference for us that helps us to understand that this is a wise person. If, in fact, Solomon is the one who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, who better to teach us about wisdom than the one the Bible says was the wisest man who had ever lived at that point? 
There's, there's much to learn here. So I don't want us to get caught up on who it was that wrote it, although we should look at the question. If you want to have that discussion, we can have it in depth at any point you want. You'll probably hear me kind of interchangeably use as an author to this, maybe I'll say Solomon every once in a while, and maybe I'll use the word Koheleth, which is the title for that we get the word preacher from here in verse 1. That's the Hebrew word. That's also, by the way, the title of the Hebrew book in the Bible, Koheleth. It means teacher. It means gatherer. It means one who takes wisdom and pulls it together. The reason it's entitled Ecclesiastes in our English Bibles is because we take that word from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and the Greek translation for Koheleth is ekklesia, which is our New Testament term for church. It means a gathering. So all of that is housekeeping, and I'm sorry to have to put it out there, but it's going to help us as we go further. It'll help you understand when I use these words interchangeably who we're talking about here. And what I want us to come down to is this. Whoever wrote this, ultimately the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired it. Ultimately, this is God's Word, and therefore it holds meaning for us, whoever the writer was. It is that point of reference in life where we have God's Word for us that is profitable for teaching and instruction and correction and all of those things that we find as Paul writes them in the New Testament. So as we move forward, let's just go from that point of reference and let me return to the question. Housekeeping is over. Let's get to the message. What are you chasing in life? Where will you look? Where are you currently looking to find meaning and purpose and fulfillment in your life? The preacher, as verse 1 calls him, or teacher, as your translation may say, he's going to offer us a little bit of assistance for our own chase in life. You see, the premise of the whole book and the premise of this series of messages is that we're all chasing something. We're all looking somewhere on this consistent basis for meaning and purpose and joy and those things in life that we can use, that we can sit back and go, okay, this is what life is about. The preacher is going to give us a little bit of help in that. Let me go ahead and read the first three verses just to kind of set the tone for where we're going to go with this. In the, uh, these, verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What an uplifting way to start a book. You know, one of the things that we find historically as we study or others have studied this book of Ecclesiastes is this ongoing question. How in the world did such a depressing book find its way into Scripture? There are many people who argue forcefully. Now, I don't think they're right, but they argue forcefully that it shouldn't even be in here at all, much less should we spend any time reading it. Well, that's kind of ridiculous. It is in God's Word. We do believe that it's an inspired Word of God, and it holds incredible teaching for us. As a matter of fact, in my own personal life, some of the best personal Bible study I've ever done is in the book of Ecclesiastes. Because in every turn, there's truth that applies directly into our lives. As I said earlier, and I will say again as we work our way through this, that there will be times that we will see the chase of the preacher, of the writer of Ecclesiastes, whether it's Solomon or whoever, we will see enough in his chase that we will think that it's a mirror image of us in our chase. 
You ever been disillusioned with life? You ever been at a point where you just look around and you go, really, is this all there is to it? I think I told you when I first came and that all of those meetings that we had in the process of you deciding if you wanted me to be your pastor or not, one of the things, one of those major turning points in my life as far as my Christian life and my role as a minister was when I looked around at all of the trappings, all of the what I call churchianity that was around. And inside of me, that my spirit was just troubled with everything that I saw. And it was in my own life, it was like, okay, I, I, I can check all of the boxes. I can do all the right things, but there's got to be more than this. And so I even got to the point that my prayer was, God, if there's not more than this, then I'm out. So if there's more than what I see around me and all of this churchianity stuff and all the trappings and all the scheduling, if there's more than that, I want whatever it is. So take me to another level with you. If you want a guaranteed shakeup to your life in 2018, pray that prayer. God, take me to another level with you. But don't pray it unless you're willing to be shaken up. There's always another level with God in our lives. So the preacher begins in this depressing kind of a way. Vanity of vanities. The word is an interesting word in Hebrew there, and I'm not going to go into a big, long Hebrew discussion, but let me just pull it down this way. You'll find that this is translated in a variety of different ways. Vanity, as we find in this translation. Others will say uh, meaningless, meaningless, meaningless of meaninglessness. He just stacks up the words and the impact here. But let me take the Hebrew word and put it down on this level for you. Uh, I was driving down uh, Mesa not too long ago. It was before it started getting cold. Uh, and I came up to a light, and it was red, and so I started slowing down. And I noticed the car in the lane next to me that was already up there. I thought it was on fire because coming out, <laughs> out of the windows that were open was the smoke. I mean smoke. And I thought, that car's on fire. And so I had to make the decision, do I pull up next to him or do I pull off on the side and see if I can help him out? So I made the decision to pull up next to him. Smoke's billowing out. And then all of a sudden I noticed that he pulls a pipe out of his mouth and he was vaping. You know the term vaping? All right, it's what it's you know because our society started cracking down on smoking cigarettes. Uh, one of the alternatives to that is vaping, and so this guy was hitting that vape pipe. I mean, and it smoke just billowing out. And you know what I noticed from that? After about two seconds of every time he did that, that vape was just gone. It looked like it was there. I mean, it was there. I thought it was on fire, but in just a handful of seconds, every time he pulled the mouth, I mean, the pipe away from his mouth, blew it out, within two seconds, it was totally gone. That is this word in Hebrew, a vapor. So the conclusion, I haven't said that yet, so let me go ahead and get that on the table here. The writer of Ecclesiastes begins with his conclusion of the end of his chase. He's going to go through this book for us and talk about the chase that he's been on where he looked for meaning in life and where he looked for fulfillment in life. But at the end of the day, which is where he puts it in verses 1 through 2, especially here, his conclusion is life is just a vapor. It's here and then it's gone. 
Now, if we're not careful, we will hear that, and we will think that what he means by that is that life is just nothing. If that's his conclusion, then you might well ask, why in the world are we going to study this? Well, let me rephrase what I said. At the opening of the book, he gives the end of his chase and what he came to. But at the end of the book, he's going to give us a point of reference that will help us, and I'll get to that in just a little bit. But before we get to that, let's make sure that we understand a little bit of his chase because as we move into and through the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to find that his chase will take him to evaluate wisdom. We would call that education. And there are those people in our world today who would say, you need to get all of the education you can. I tend to be one of those people. All of the education that you can possibly and justifiably pursue, you should get. We have enough people who are lazy thinkers that we need some people who will step into it and go, let me train myself into this. So he will look into the world of wisdom. He'll look into the world of wealth. By the way, if we say this is Solomon who wrote this, who better to talk about the value of those things than the king who was the one who presided over the most profitable time economically for the children of Israel in, up to his point and even after for a long time. Solomon had some pretty clear credentials to talk about meaning in life and purpose, fulfillment, and joy. So he'll look at wisdom, he'll look at wealth, he'll look at work. He'll look at status. All of those things will come to play with this. But I want to bring you back to you and to me. We'll, we'll understand better his chase before it's all said and done. But really the goal here is for you to understand your chase. Not too long ago, I was watching one of the main news, 24-hour news cycle channels. And one of the most recognizable names in network news in America these days made a comment. He was doing, or at least speaking about a story about the opioid crisis, and the addictions of opioid use in our time. And he made a comment, and the, the host, as they were talking back and forth, kind of moved to the point of, of asking this question, needing an answer to, why do people abuse drugs? Why, why is it that people are, are putting themselves in a position where they recognize that it ruins other people's lives? Why do they keep doing that? Let me just give you my answer, having come out of that world, but with a theological point of reference for us. First of all, don't try to understand it because it is illogical when you get right down to it. But there is this truth. Those people who abuse drugs don't do it just for the sake of the abuse of drugs. They're chasing a sensation. The reason people get into drug use in the first place is because it gives a sensation, a feeling, an experience that is appealing to them. Nobody who begins to abuse drugs starts with 
I think I'm going to be a heroin addict. I think I really want to be a heroin addict in my life. Nobody starts off that way. There's always that point of reference that says, I, I need to numb the pain of my life. This will help me do that. Or so they think. I, I need to feel better today. This will help me do that. Or so they think. And so that whole mentality says, and, and we need to draw from that, this truth that the key for them is not the drug itself. It is the mechanism to get what they're chasing. And before we get to be too hard on people like that, we should come back and own for ourselves our own chase that respectable people use as the mechanisms to dull the pain of their lives. What are the mechanisms of respectable people that they use to try to find some kind of meaning and purpose, some kind of sense of actualization in their lives? Here's a few obvious answers for you. I, I want to brag on Nikki Licking for just a few moments. Um, somewhere here I have a bulletin. Look at your bulletin if you got one as you came in because I want to brag on her a little bit. She's an artist. Now, I've been around a lot of artists through the years, but uh, I've not seen anybody do what Nikki can do. So I went into her this week. It was a short week at the office. And so I went into her and I said, okay, so I'm going to start a new series this week, and you may not have time to put together a bulletin cover because she's the one who does that for us. And uh, she said, well, let me just tell me what it is, and I'll see what I can do. So I, I gave her about a three-minute overview, maybe not even three-minute overview of what the whole series is going to be about, the chase. And, and the thesis of that is that we're all chasing something, looking for meaning and fulfillment in life. And so she said, okay, let me work with that. In 10 minutes, I kid you not, 10 minutes, she gives me this that you hold in your hand, not the full bulletin, but at least the artwork on that. And she has captured very well not only what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, but what we're going to try to look at as we go forward. And I want you to look carefully at this because the person doing the chasing here has a few things out there that represent some of the things that we chase in life. So there's a house and there's a hammer, which represents work, and there's a heart, which rep represents love, and there's a bottle. I don't know what that represents, but <clears throat> just seeing if you're listening. And there's money. And there's a globe, and there's a smiley face that represents happiness. There's a cross. We'll talk about that before this is all said and done. The, uh, I, I like, I'm going to interpret for her what I think she meant, but the thumbs up sign is that thing that is acceptance, that other people say, you know, I like you. You're, you're okay. So let me ask you again with this as a visual trigger for you. What are you chasing in life? You see, respectable people in our world, we tend to chase stuff that is socially acceptable, but still empty at the end of the chase. So some obvious answers that might fit for you as you consider the question, what are you chasing, is money. That's one of them. I overheard a conversation one time. I, I think it's probably one that happens a lot all over the place, but this one was in person. I overheard these two people talking. We were talking to a guy who had, uh, he was independently wealthy. He had all the money that he could ever need in life. And so somebody asked him, so how much money is enough? And his answer was one that some of us would anticipate. 
Well, how much money is enough? Just a little more. Always just a little more. No matter how much I have, just a little more is what I want. What are you chasing in life? Some people believe that if I could just bank a million dollars, that's going to take care of all of my life's problems. I would put you in the company of several millionaires that I have known through the years who would argue against that. Sometimes more money creates more problems that rob sleep from you at night. Maybe money's not your chase. Maybe it's status and success. So you work your fingers to the bone, and you work through relationships, and you use people because the chase that you're on says, I have to reach this status. I have to have this job title. I have to hold that office. Respectable people often admire that chase. Oh, he's an up-and-comer. Oh, he, he rises above the crowd. Maybe our chase moves us to the stuff that money and status give us. So we pack our houses and our garages full of stuff that we hope will calm that gnawing feeling inside that says this, this is fun, but at the end of the day it doesn't get me what I'm after, so I'll look for the next thing. We're all on a chase of some kind. We're all looking somewhere for fulfillment in our lives. Maybe you put it into people. Some of those are obvious. Some are not so obvious. This chase that leads us to meaninglessness. You know, one of the things that I find interesting and sad and very challenging as a pastor is to help those people, parents especially, who think that their children are going to be the ones who give them meaning for themselves. So they pour themselves into their children. And so we have developed terms in our time like helicopter parents, those ones who just have to be involved in every aspect of their children's life, and it becomes more about my needs rather than what I'm doing for my children. And so we look for meaning in the title mom or dad or grandma or granddad. What's your chase? One of, the, one of the chases that I have found that I think is really important for us to get, especially if you happen to be one of those overachievers. When I was in college at Wayland Baptist University, they made us go to chapel. Now, I say that that way on purpose. I was one of the preacher boys there, and the, nobody hated chapel more than the preacher students. Um, and most of them were very forgettable, those chapel services. But I remember two especially. One of them was when my mentor, Dr. Gary Manning, was the one who did chapel that day. And I remember most of what he said that day and certainly what he did. Um, and that'll be for another sermon somewhere. We'll talk about that. But in this particular case, the only other chapel service that I remember was when an alumni of Wayland Baptist University came back to do chapel for us. And he was a renowned surgeon. And so they wanted to bring these people who had graduated from Wayland in front of us at chapel to help us stick with it because they wanted us to make something of ourselves so that we could contribute to them. And that might be an editorial there. But uh, so as this guy gets up and he starts talking about his life, and he said, and I am a physician, and I 
am a surgeon. And there came a point in my life where I turned because that didn't get it for me, and I, I wore the title proudly, but it didn't get me where I was going. And so, so I, I finally turned to the bottle to try to find some kind of sense of meaning and purpose in life, or at least to dull the pain. And that one bottle turned into thousands of bottles for him until finally he was invited not to practice medicine anymore because of his alcohol problem. And he said, and when that happened to me, it dawned on me that I had put my whole identity in what I did. And when they took away from me what I did, I was nobody. I want you to know that this question of what chase you are on has profound implications in your life. M. Craig Barnes, one of my favorite authors, preachers, put it this way, at the end of it all, when we chase those things that cannot bring us fulfillment in life, here's what he says, having grown exhausted in the chase, many, that's in the chase is my inclusion here, having grown exhausted, many just give up and settle for busy or comfortable distractions that numb the emptiness of their souls. On any given Sunday in any given church, there will be those people in attendance, sometimes high percentages, who fit that description, just trying to numb the emptiness from a chase gone wrong. So is that all there is to it? The biblical phrase that we find in the New Testament, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Is that really all there is to it? The 1970s version of that in American society was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Is that all there is to it? I told you as we began this that the writer of Ecclesiastes begins the book with the conclusion of his chase, but that's not the final finding of his chase. Because in chapter 12, verse 13, we read these words. This is the next to last verse of the entire book. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Here's his conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. What the writer of Ecclesiastes is going to tell us when it's all said and done is he's going to go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, where we find the whole beginning of this thing we call life. And he's going to tell us and remind us that we are created for relationship with God. Augustine said it best when he said, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Your chase must lead you to Jesus Christ. If you're chasing anything or anybody else other than him, I'll promise you, you will not find fulfillment in life. You will not find what you're looking for until you find it in Jesus Christ. Do you know him today? Or are you on some treadmill of life chasing all manner of stuff that's going to leave you empty at the end? He is the goal. Life is about relationship with him and fellowship with him. Let me ask you to bow your heads with me as we close this message today. Do you know Jesus Christ? Are you tired in your own chase? 
Is it possible that you're here today and God has brought you here at this time on this day because you're just worn out and you need an answer? I'm going to tell you without apology, without any kind of uh, hesitation at all in my own search, I did not understand life at all until I found Jesus Christ and embraced him. And I'm going to invite you to do the same thing today. Father, use the invitation time as your spirit is working in the lives of people already. We pray that you would draw them to yourself, that they would find life in you and purpose and meaning in their relationship with you. And if they don't have that relationship, that you would help them to find it right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.